at the heart of this book, beyond the discussion of hookup culture, beyond the discussion of consent, beyond the discussion of pornography, at the very heart was um, a discussion of vulnerability. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We think we know how boys think about sex. We certainly make assumptions. And, yeah, good luck getting boys to talk about sex. Thanks to Peggy Orenstein, all of that is now changing. Peggy has spent decades researching and writing about girls, girls and sex, and along the way, breaking taboos, producing seven best-selling books, including the highly regarded Girls and Sex, and along the way being named as one of the 40 women who has changed the media. She now brings her fearless, groundbreaking focus to boys with her latest book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, and Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Whatever we think we know will be upended. Porn as our sex educator, hookups as appealing, boys as taciturn, and parents as helpless, and tons more. Peggy spent a couple of years interviewing more than 100 boys and men from the ages of 16 to 22 across the country. And as a result, whatever we think we know will be upended. Hookups as appealing, porn as inevitable, boys as taciturn, and parents as helpless. Most importantly, she paves the way for how we can all work together for boys to have a more expansive way of thinking of masculinity, sex, and relationships. Peggy, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. So, Peggy, why boys? Why now? Yeah, I mean, I have to be candid and say that writing about boys was never on my to-do list. <laughs> um you know, I've written about girls for 25 years. And uh, after publishing Girls and Sex, everywhere I went, people said, when are you going to write about the boys? What about the boys? You only had half the conversation. And I would say, yeah, you know, I think that's somebody else's job, really. But the more I thought about it, you know, the more I realized nobody was talking to boys about these issues and nobody was listening to boys. And so I started doing some ish interviews and then the Me Too re uh, revelations happened. And uh, suddenly it became imperative to reduce sexual violence, and people were very concerned about boys. But in addition to that, you know, mandate, um, it also seemed to me to offer an opportunity to really engage boys in, in a more thoughtful way about their ideas and their attitudes and their expectations of sex, of gender, of love, of masculinity. We'll be back after a short break from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Why We Swim, by Bonnie Soy, now available from Algonquin Books. Why We Swim is a fascinating cultural history. We have been going back in the water ever since evolution took us out of it. This book reaches far back and also looks forward to how climate change is affecting where we swim, how we swim, and why we swim. Named the most anticipated book of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle and Bustle, who called it a thoughtful inquiry into human nature. Rebecca Skloot, best-selling author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, says Why We Swim is a beautiful written love letter to water and a fascinating story. I was enchanted. 
Subjects in the book include Polar Swim Champions, a Baghdad Swim Club, the Winningest Olympians, modern-day samurai swimmers, an Icelandic fisherman who improbably survived a six-hour swim in the wintry Atlantic, and swimmers both living, recently living, and long gone. Sue's last book, American Chinatown, A People's History of Five Neighborhoods, won the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature and was the San Francisco Chronicle bestseller and the best of 2009 Notable Bay Area book selection. Why We Swim is a book to give as a gift to swimmers and water lovers, like those who read Find a Way by Diana Nyad and Deep by James Nestor. For readers of books that go beyond a particular sport, like Haruki Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, and for everyone who enjoys a gorgeously written deep dive into cultural history. Why We Swim also has a Mother's Day appeal. Last December, the author published a piece in Sports Illustrated titled Meet the Women Who Are Changing What It Means to Be a Mom and a Professional Athlete. Why We Swim is now available at all booksellers. Purchase today. And today's episode is also brought to you by Skylight Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift for mom or another loved one? My mom and I live far away and it could be a struggle to stay connected. But after I got her a skylight frame, I can send new photos to her almost every day. It's a really easy way for her to see what I'm up to and for us to stay connected. Nowadays, staying in touch with those we love is more important than ever. And the easiest way to do it is with Skylight, a photo frame you can email photos to anytime from anywhere. Skylight is a great way to feel close to those you love, even when you're separated. Multiple people can send photos to the frame, so it's a great way to keep large networks of friends and families in touch. Skylight is easy to set up in under 60 seconds. Just plug in, use the touch screen to connect to your wireless network, and enjoy. Sending photos to Skylight is effortless. Everyone in your family can just email photos to Mom Skylight, and they'll pop up in her home in seconds. Skylight has a black frame, so it looks like a real photo frame that adds a beautiful touch to your home. Skylight Frames has a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen. You can swipe through photos with your finger and even tap to thank the person who sent the photo. Skylight is 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. You can preload Skylight with your favorite photos for a special Mother's Day gift, send pictures of you, and even your pets that they didn't even know you had. You can tap the heart button and it will let the sender know you love the photo. This makes the frame interactive and fun to use. It's so simple that even my non-tech savvy mom and dad could set it up and use it in seconds. Now, as a special holiday offer for Just the Right Book listeners, you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com book and enter the code book. That's right, to get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com book and enter the code book. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T. F-R-A-M-E dot com slash book. Back to the show. Were you worried that you couldn't either get boys who would be willing to meet with you or once they did, they would sit there sort of like with their arms across their chest? Oh, my God. Saying so yes worried. or no. or <laughs> Yeah, I was terribly worried that I would have. I mean, that was part of my resistance to doing the book was I thought, what, you know, they don't exactly have a reputation for chatting boys. And I thought I'd have entire transcripts that consisted of, nope. <laughs> yep. You know? Um, yeah. But that was totally wrong. And I think that the one of the biggest takeaways from this book, more than any specific thing that the boys said, 
or any conclusions that I drew was how eager they were to talk. And mm. not only that, but what really insightful narrators they were for the most part about their own experience. And I really, you know, I felt like the truth is, you know, nobody ever asks them. And given the opportunity, they had a lot that they were wrestling with and wanted to talk about. So it ended up being, you know, just an incredibly deep and interesting and enriching and surprising experience that way. Well, Peggy, if I didn't know that you were a journalist of an extraordinary high level of integrity, I would have thought some of these stories were made up. Because <laughs> the, the boys are, you know, when we'll talk about a couple of the stories, but the boys are so available and willing to be vulnerable in these conversations that you're you're somewhat taken aback by it. Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, sometimes some of them, were, you know, just the girls, too, some of them were not great interviews and, you know, they ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but so many of the guys really, I, you know, and I, I, I do think that it was partly because they had things they wanted to ask somebody, you know, mm. and and while on one hand, I thought, oh, gosh, they won't talk to me because I look like their mom. You know, on the other hand, they have another model for a um curly-haired, middle-aged woman with glasses sitting across from them with a notebook, uh, and that's a therapist. Mm. And I think that a lot of them, you know, took took that opportunity. And I, and I ended up thinking, you know, at first I was really resistant to doing the book because I was female, and I thought, yeah, a guy should do this book. But I think in a funny way it advantaged me because I think that when if, if boys are going to drop that wall and be vulnerable and be real and be honest, they're more likely to do it with a woman than with a man. Well, and I, the next question I was going to ask you is, how different do you think the interviews would have been with a male? Because the logical reaction you would have, as you understand how complicated boys' idea of masculinity is, that wouldn't they be motivated to keep up the bro kind of Possibly. attitude if they were with a guy? I don't know. I mean, I think there's some really great male therapists that I've talked to and really great, you know, uh, male educators who do wonders with boys. And I think that when a, a, a man like that engages them, and that's partly why jumping way ahead to the end of the book, I talk about the importance of adult men in boys' lives, because mm. when they can engage on that level, um, I think it's revolutionary for boys. But um, it's not, you know, it's 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 less common. And Peggy, why don't you think this topic has been covered before? They are half of the kids. And it's it's sort of stunning. I mean, I remember literally decades ago, we had one woman uh, at the bookstore who wrote a book on raising sons. And, you know, we like sold out at that event because yeah. there was so little. But why hasn't there been more that was addressing the topics that you've addressed with girls for mm. so long? Well, I mean, there's been some, but I think that parents of girls have been more motivated um, to make change and girls themselves have been motivated to make change. I mean, one thing that I that I talk a lot about is I talk a lot about media in Boys and Sex. I talk a lot about mainstream media and about pornography. And I've thought a lot about how we have, you know, in the 25 years that I've been writing about girls, We've made such progress and it's not perfect. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that still work that needs to be done. But in recognizing the potential harm that media messages do to girls and in really trying to work with girls and think about how to give them a lens and tools with which to critique the media so they can resist those messages. 
And, you know, boys grow up in the same stew and you could argue it's turned up higher. And we aren't saying boo to them mm. about what the media messages mean. And so I feel like that's one place where we can sort of look at what we've done with girls and say, wow, you know, we actually can make a difference here in our kids' lives and how we talk about these things. But we just have to remember and think about doing it with our sons as well as with our daughters. And you talk about in the book that, just as you said, girls have a wider lens with which to think about themselves as girls or women. But that when you talk to the boys about masculinity, they almost sounded like a throwback to the 50s. Yeah, yeah, that was really true. Yeah, girls have a, a broader sense these days. To, you know, that's to our credit. We have really done the work. And that's, again, we have done such huge work with girls that I think it shows the potential for change that we can then, you know, transpose in a different way to boys. But um, girls have a much broader sense of what it means to be female than boys do for what it means to be male. So on one hand, boys, yeah, they were, you know, they had a much more egalitarian idea of like, they saw girls as equal in the classroom or leadership or, um, you know, educational and professional opportunities. They had female friends, they had gay male friends. But when you say to, to boys, you know, what's the ideal guy? It's exactly like they're channeling 1955. It would be, um, they would talk about um, dominance, aggression, or Actually, now it's this weird combination of aggressive and chill simultaneously that I never quite understood. Um, You'll explain uh, that to me in a minute. Yeah. Sex is status seeking um, or uh, and and the big one uh, is emotional suppression. And that really had not changed. Yeah. And you tell a story about a young man named Cole Mm -hmm. and I was really struck with the way you described it. So Cole was a young man, um, handsome, athlete, looked like the kind of guy that might ignore anything, you know, wrong going on with girls or behavior. And yet he was aware of it. But as he tried to do something about it, share with us what happened. Yeah, yeah. He um so Cole, yeah, he was surprised me. He was he was very attuned to these issues and he had tried along with a friend to go up against um some boys who were engaging in what we call locker room talk and you know, they were saying something despicable and sexual and and aggressive about a girl. And so they they said something. They spoke out and the other boys mocked them. And so the next time Um, somebody said something, Cole did not say anything, but his friend continued to challenge it. And what he said to me was the more his friend stepped up and the more he himself stepped back, the more he noticed that people didn't, the other guys didn't like his friend as much and they weren't listening to him as much. And he lost all his social capital. And what he said to me was, and I was just sitting there with buckets of social capital left and I didn't, you know, and I don't know what to do. And he looked at me with real pain in his eyes. And he said, you know, I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and these guys, but how do I make it so I don't have to choose? Mm. And I thought so much about that as I interviewed boys because, you know, Michael Thompson, who's a um, psychologist who has written about boys, says that it's silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny where boys become men. And so I thought a lot about that silence Mm. and the silence of boys and what not only what they did say, but what they couldn't or didn't, or wouldn't say as well. So what will 
change that environment? I mean, we'll talk about a couple, uh, you know, I want to make sure we get um, to the to a number of the other sections, but just listening to you say that, that's a that's a, a sort of monumental shift. It is tough. Yeah, it's tough. Well, you know, I actually recently, I was doing a reading in um, Chicago and a boy who was a Division One athlete, college athlete, came up to me afterwards and said, I want to change this culture. What do I do? And I sent it, I said, can't tell you in a signing line, but, um, you know, we emailed and I said, look, you know, there's, you there's not one thing, but there's multiple, you know, it's a multifocal approach. So if you have a willing coach, um, something like the program coaching boys into men, which has been shown to reduce, um, uh, sexist and misogynist behavior and sexual violence and to increase bystander intervention and such instituting that is really great. Um, you know, finding allies within your, all the boys always think that they're the only ones who think like that, mm. you know, who think, oh, this is wrong. And that gives the other boys power. So starting, starting that conversation, or maybe if it's one of your friends who's talking like that, finding another time when you're alone to be able to just kind of say, look, I'm not okay with that. And, you know, he'll say something like, what do you have to get a tampon or some, you know, comment like that? And you go, no, I'm just telling you, dude, not okay with it. That's it. Let's go back to playing video games, you know? Um, so there's like a lot of different ways to, to start moving that dial, but there's not like one magic bullet. Mm. And, and because you have a number of other suggestions, but let, let's go to a topic that I found, um, I, I shouldn't say sh I found it shocking, but I was surprised at the breadth. And so you mentioned that oh. since parents rather poke their eyes out than talk about orgasms, consent, or a clitoris with their sons, and schools have inadequate sex curriculums, porn is serving as the sex educator for many of these young men. Absolutely. So what are they learning from this porn that is their now source of information? Well, so, you know, what has changed, and, and I do encourage parents, although it sounds like I'm doing an ad for Pornhub, but I, I actually encourage parents, especially mothers who probably are least likely to have looked at this, to go look at the front page of Pornhub. It won't do anything to your computer or whatever, because you do need to know, because if you have this, like, idea of 70s porn in your head, you're way off. And um, what happened was that Pornhub um, went online and dropped the paywall on pornography. So it wasn't just the Internet. It wasn't just the smartphone. But it was also that now it's all free and like YouTube, you know, and um, so that easy access porn uh, shows over and over the idea that sex is something that men do to women, not with them, that female pleasure is a performance for male satisfaction, um, wildly distorted bodies, obviously no sense of uh, connection. It's, you know, it's dehumanized, it's detached. And there's just, you know, it, 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 and even the acts that are kind of more vanilla probably wouldn't feel good to most people, especially women. Um, so if we're not getting in there as parents and as educators and talking about what's real and what's not real and what's missing from those images that they're seeing, we're doing our kids a tremendous disservice because they are using that as a sex educator. All research points to that. Their, their first access is between 11 and 13 and girls as well as boys, but boys more. Um, and they're bringing those ideas into the bedroom because boys would say to me all the time, I know the difference between fantasy and reality. And I think, really? Because you have no actual experience, A. And B, the way media works, any media, 
um, is that it affects our thoughts, beliefs, and actions, even when we think it doesn't. And what the research shows is that, in fact, boys are bringing these ideas into the bedroom and that boys who are regular porn consumers are more likely to think its images are real and to want to act out some of its more aggressive um, ideas and that they are also less satisfied with their partner interactions and with their um, per own performance in their partner's body. So it's not, you know, one thing to say to your kids about this is, I really want you to have great sexual relationships and, and great relationships with, you know, whomever you choose to have a relationship with. And this is not going to get you there is my concern because it's actually doing the opposite. And that's like a great place to start a conversation. So what is it that, uh, well, let me ask you this first. Did you find any sort of subset of parent that seemed to be more likely to talk with their kids about sex or pornography? Um, sex educators. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, I wasn't really interviewing parents, so, uh, but yeah. the kids, it's, I mean, it's really interesting, and I've, I've talked about this with other people who do this work, that uh, ki- we have to have, like, if you think about table manners, right, how many, you, if you just sat your child down and said, here's a fork, here's a knife, uh, put your napkin on your lap, don't chew with your mouth open, say please, ask, ask to be excused, now go forth and be polite, you know? That would not work. Mm. One talk on table manners. You have to tell your child 585,632 times to say thank you before they do it on their own, right? So similarly with sex, it's not about having this one conversation. And it's just we have to stop thinking about it that way. And and addressing this is not just about don't watch porn or don't do this. But it's also about having all these conversations, very short conversations peppered throughout their lives um, around all these different issues of of media, of pleasure-based sex, of masculinity. And when uh, I have a friend, uh, Cara Natterson, who has a great book out now, Decoding Boys, who says that when she, as a physician, when she would ask kids, her teenagers, she's a pediatrician, um, have your parents talked to you about sex? They would say no. And when she would ask the parents, the same kids' parents later, they would tell them in detail about the the single conversation they had with their child about sex. So the kids are not hearing these, you know, single conversations we're having. We have to really change the way that we uh, interact with our kids around all these issues. So let's explore that for a minute, because one of the things that becomes clear in the book is it's not the talk, you know, right. the the joke about the talk. I mean, my husband thinks he gave, he used to joke that he gave our son the talk when our son was up one night, all all night, when he was two years old, and he told yeah. him everything, and he figures, okay, I got to check Done. that box. <laughs> um, so, talk a little bit more about the breadth of the topics that includes talking about sex with your kids, because it's yeah. not, you know, it's not the sort of cliched. Oh, you you explain to them where babies come from, right? Right. It's not about reproduction. It's not about anatomy, although it is about those things, obviously, too. Um, and, and I will just tell you, you know, on, on my website, which is PeggyOrnstein.com, there's a, a, a button that says resources. And um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's the one that's not princesses anyway. Uh, has It's a whole long page of um, resources so that you can customize depending on your child's age, depending on their gender, depending on their sexuality, depending on all of these different things, um, what 
you know, the, the, the kind of ideas that you want to put together and start thinking about to have these conversations. So, um, you know, it's, it, we tend to think of sex, particularly in this country as something that's siloed off to the side and has nothing to do with the rest of everything. Um, but in fact, the lessons that we're teaching in general relate. So, you know, if you have a small child and you are telling them, um, you know, uh, don't hug anybody without asking or nobody gets to hug you without asking. That's a lesson in consent at a very young age. That's age appropriate, right? Um, If you are um, naming for a boy, you know, we, we, I mentioned emotional suppression and we talked, we haven't really talked about that, but they lose the ability to identify their feelings at a fairly young age. And so to continue, continue to say to boys, wow, it seems like you're sad or, you know, sounds like that was really frustrating. Or to actually, you know, broaden their scope of emotions uh, because they tend to feel that all they have is happiness and anger. Uh, that is really important because that relates to how they're able to connect to and humanize um, a partner, to be able to model vulnerability. And, you know, you said before that so often with these conversations, especially the ones that are overtly about sex, that are about female pleasure, that are about um uh, you know, reciprocity or about pornography or about any of these things that, that are explicitly about sex, we think, oh, I'd rather poke myself in the eye with a fork. Um, but I encourage you to kind of reframe that, to recognize that it's also an opportunity to model what it means to have difficult conversations. You can say, you know, this feels incredibly awkward. We're going to do it anyway. Um, because your child isn't going to know how to have difficult conversations if you don't teach them how. And right. it's a way to show up and create that openness and that potential for hard conversation. And you can then, you know, that, that will make a difference in your adult relationship. Again, not only, you know, around these topics, but in general. Because Peggy, you also talk about, which I think some people might be surprised about is how many of the young men you interviewed said that they wish they had more insight from their parents about emotional intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big one. They wished that they, it wasn't just about sex. It was about what, you know, what does it mean to have a relationship? I mean, one thing kids don't know today because they're in a social media area era and a hookup era, they don't know how to ask somebody out for a date, you know, like in a really basic way. What does it mean to have a relationship? How do you get into a relationship? What happens when you have conflict in that relationship? What happens when you break up? How do you break up with somebody? How do you get over a breakup? I mean, there were a lot of things that they had questions about from, and the boys, in general, but also specifically from they wanted to hear from the men in their lives, whether that was their dad or their stepdad or whomever the man in their life was. Um, They really wanted to know more about how that person navigated sex and relationships and also about perhaps um, their parents' own regret. And boys would say to me repeatedly that they felt actually let down by the men in their lives around these issues. And it, it, it really struck me because I would think when they would say that, I'd think, yeah, I can totally get that. Cause like my dad, you know, I can imagine that he was like that with my brothers. And then I realized, wait, 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 my dad's in his nineties. You know, these guys are talking about my peers. They're yeah. talking about the men I grew up with and that they're still acting and relating to their sons in the ways that my dad did, you know, whatever, 50 years ago or whenever my brothers were teenagers. But they um, distinguished one of the things that was interesting is, so yes, their dad seemed to be the same kind of 
um, unwilling or incapable of having conversations that were about emotions or intimacy. Yet the boys were also careful to talk about how loving yes. their dads were. It's not they like loved they were their dads. Yeah. It's yeah. not and like they, they were saying he was a bad guy. No, not at all. And they were also not saying, I mean, it's really tempting when, you know, when boys talk about and, and research shows that, you know, the, the rigid gender norms come from um, fathers. You know, that's how they're communicated from father to son. And they and they would you know, there was some guys who would say, you know, my dad told me to man up or don't be a little bitch or that, you know, that kind of thing. But that was really the minority. Most of the guys would say things like this boy in Los Angeles who said, you know, my dad, my dad was not homophobic. He was not sexist. He was not some you know guy who was communicating toxic masculinity. But I did learn the more stunted side of masculinity for him from him. He was more of a sigh and walk away kind of a guy than somebody who would ever talk to you about how you were feeling or express emotion with you. And I learned how not to have those conversations from him. So again, it was kind of in that silence that they were learning to become men. And and, and that silence then continues. Yeah, it continues and it continues in the relationship. And I, I mean, I really feel, I mean, we've, we haven't even barely talked about sex, which is, which is, you know, in, a, in some ways um, appropriate because I felt like at the heart of this book, beyond the discussion of hookup culture, beyond the discussion of consent, beyond the discussion of pornography, at the very heart was um, a discussion of vulnerability. Mm. And, and I did a, a search at one point of how often boys use that word in, in our conversations. And it was so often. And it was, and it was all about, you know, wrestling with it, deflecting it, embracing it, capitulating to it. It was all this relationship to vulnerability. And, you know, vulnerability is a fundamental human uh, trait. And, you know, the genius Brene Brown says not only that, but it's the secret sauce that holds relationships together. And so when we undermine boys' capacity for vulnerability, we reduce their capacity to have the kinds of mutually gratifying, personally fulfilling relationships that we want them to be able to have. And that hurts them. And that hurts their romantic partners. So, Peggy, what one of the things I want to make sure that we're reinforcing in this in this conversation that both the prevalence of porn and the environment around hookups reinforce remaining emotionally distant. Yeah, from the act of sex. So I, I want to cover that in, in two little pieces. One is spend a, a, a little bit of time talking about how porn actually, in some cases, reduces the amount of sex that boys are having, that it is distorting what it is they expect sex to be. So real life sex would always fail and they begin defaulting to porn because that was a, 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 that was a surprising quality that porn's actually, I don't think it's ironic, but I'll use the word irony, that it's almost ironic that this use of porn, this almost addiction to porn is replacing sex. Yeah, I mean, I, I as I said earlier, porn users, regular porn users, tend to be less satisfied with their partnered experiences, and boys would, you know, not, you know, it was 
not, again, not, you know, not, not all of them, but they would talk about it sort of almost like they would talk about, you know, drinking too much or using too much weed, but they would talk about times when they felt it was intruding and undermining, um, their sexual pleasure in real life, whether it was things or, or things like one guy, I can be graphic, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're not so on one, network radio. Right. So, well, let's put it this way. So one guy said, um, that he found, he stopped watching porn. He was a senior in high school when he was in math class looking at this girl across from him and thinking about what she would look like with ejaculate on her face. And he was so startled to have that thought. He said like, it wasn't like he was thinking about what, you know, what it'd be like to kiss her or what she'd look like naked or anything. It's like, that was the porniest image. And, and he just went, Oh, I got to stop that. Or, mm. you know, guys who felt like they weren't attracted to their, um, partners bodies in the way that they wanted to be because they had developed this sort of, um, hyper focus of what appealed to them, um, based on porn. And again, you know, they didn't know if that was told, I, I can never really say chicken or the egg to a degree, but it was more that they felt that this was true and that they had never talked about it with any, with an adult. I mean, it was the number one thing boys wanted to talk to me about, frankly, um, was, was porn use and its impact on them. And mm. so, you know, it was, it, it was, it was important to them. And I think and they had and, their and, own performance anxiety about and their, they own had their own performance about, about penis size, about stamina, you know, um, Didn't one about, guy set a timer to make sure that he was, yeah, that was more having about sex culture. at least a, a certain amount of time. Yeah. So that, I mean, he did talk about like the, the, the messed up expectations you get, but, but with that, that was really interesting because in hookup culture, I had talked in the girls and sex book about how, um, female orgasm was so devalued in that culture, but that didn't mean, and that's true. But it didn't mean that boys weren't concerned with female satisfaction. They just defined it in a completely different way. Um, and because so much of a hookup is about the story you're going to tell after, it's about the invisible audience in the room, um, what they define, female pleasure was defined as male stamina during intercourse and to a lesser extent penis size. So that boy, uh, who was a sophomore in college, said that he got in the habit of looking at the clock. Um, because he wanted to make sure that he lasted in intercourse for a certain amount of time. And he said it wasn't even about her pleasure to a certain degree. It was more about his own pride and knowing that she wouldn't be disappointed and she would speak well of him to her friends. And he said, the thing was, you know, it turned sex into a task, one that mm. I enjoyed to a degree, but, you know, one that was definitely taking me out of the moment because I was so worried about this task-oriented quality. So let's go back to this word hookup, which is yeah. uh, a relatively new term. And it's always been ambiguous or unclear to me what a hookup even is. Is that, is that having intercourse? <laughs> is it, to be. What is it? It's anything you want it to be. <laughs> okay. um, it is an intentionally ambiguous word, and it could mean you know, making out. I, I, I once heard kids in college debate whether a dance floor makeup counted as a hookup. And they decided it would have in high school, but it doesn't in college. But if you did the exact same thing, excuse me, if you did the exact same thing in somebody's dorm room, then it would count. So, I mean, it it's really something that allows others to overestimate what you're doing, but it also allows you to overestimate what other people are doing. And the concern about that is that it leads to you know, engaging in acts that maybe you don't want to and in um, possibly pushing harder than you might uh, in, you know, I, it's the, it's it's like the thing of wanting to get rid of your V card. You know, you think everybody else has, you better do it really fast, even if it means just, you know, hooking up with a random when you're drunk at a party, like 
I always say to kids, like, what is it you think you're going to learn from that? What do you think that's going to give you to do that? You know? Um, but yeah, hook, in fact, in hookup culture, in, in um, if uh, the largest scale survey of college students found that, um, well, first of all, 25% of kids have never hooked up with anybody. And among, and while well, 10 to 15% have engaging in some combination of activities, um, done, hooked up with more than 10 people, uh, the rest, you know, the average number of partners through college is seven and that's not intercourse partners. And about 35 to 40% of hookups involve intercourse. Another maybe 15% involve oral sex, usually female and male. And, um, the rest are kissing and groping. And part of, part of what I learned is part of the hookup culture is it definitely presumes a lack of connection and commitment. And even, even your behavior after a, a hookup has to be kind of less friendly, less friendly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I think knowing the, the reality of, you know, the ambiguity of hookups and what's really involved in them is really useful for kids because it can reduce that pressure. Hookup culture is another thing that is dominant on most college and a lot of high school campuses now. And it's the idea that, um, sex is supposed to proceed rather than derive from emotional intimacy and that a hookup is the normalized path to a relationship, even though most hookups won't lead to relationships. And that's partly because you are supposed to be less friendly to and, and not admit to have, you know, what kids say is catching feelings like it's a disease. Like, you know, you don't want to catch chlamydia. You don't want to catch gonorrhea. You don't want to catch feelings, you know. So you have to be sort of less friendly afterwards. And that makes it very hard you know, I had one guy said, girls were always talking to me in the girl book about like guys who didn't speak to them the next day and didn't even send a text. Like it seemed like such a low bar. Um, and boys would say things like, yeah, I saw um, somebody that I hooked up with on the street the next day and I averted my eyes. And I'd say, why would you do that? And they would say, well, and it's back to that vulnerability piece. They'd say, well, I don't know what she's thinking. Maybe she thinks it's just something that happened at a party and I don't want to look weak and vulnerable and say, you know, make her think that I thought it was something more. And I said, so you would rather risk not, you know, not being able to have that tiny saying hello and possibly having something more with somebody. You'd rather just walk away and, and, and avert your eyes. And he said, yeah, that's right. And, and the other part of this, when I thought about the issue of consent that we are um, happily having more conversations about the definition of what sex is isn't necessarily what one might think. Well, I mean, kids don't necessarily think of, for instance, oral sex as as sex. If you know when they're really defining sex, they're talking about is that Bill Clinton's fault? Uh, partly, yeah. Mm. It's it's partly Clinton's fault. It's partly because of abstinence only education. Um, there's a lot of reasons why why that happened, um, but. If you only think if you only define sexually active or sex as intercourse, then everything else is not sex. And then it may not be subject to the same rules to you. And that opens the door for risky behavior and disrespect. So that that boys could think uh, demanding oral sex or uh, forcing oral sex might, in fact, not <laughs> require consent, even though they know intercourse would, of course, require consent. Yeah, I mean, they keep, you know, people are, are telling them that now, but uh, certainly in the girl book, it became really clear that that was not the case. And in the boy book, uh, 
I talk um, to, uh, there's a case at the end of that book that's a restorative justice, the, a couple. That, uh, not, yeah, let's not come couple. to that. Let's come yeah. to that, Peggy, because okay. I wanted to make sure we talked about that. Yeah. Um, so, so I really wanted to think about, um, excuse me, <coughs> I'm not sick. I just have allergies. Um, I really wanted to think about how to address issues of campus misconduct um, sexual misconduct in a way that was different and possibly could add to our thinking and our conversation. Um, and what I came to was writing about restorative practices, um, which, which allow for, uh, when a person admits that they have caused harm, uh, the person has to acknowledge that they've, that they've done something. Um, it allows for, um, justice and healing for the, for, for the person who's been harmed and also transformation uh, for the person who has done the harm. And, and, and it was really clear that a lot of times, um, not always, but a lot of times when somebody was, uh, had, um, been the, had, uh, was a survivor of sexual misconduct, they didn't necessarily want the person expelled. They really wanted the person to hear what they had done, understand what they had done, um, you know, truly take accountability for it and never do it again. Um, and so in the case that I looked at in the book, there are, uh, uh, two people and the guy is just, you know, could not be more ordinary in terms of his ignorance about, you know, any healthy vision of sex. He learned about sex from porn and he said Van Wilder movies. He was really into going to his joining a frat and getting wasted and hooking up. And, um, he has what he thinks is a bad, an awkward hookup. But in fact, what he's done is, um, assault his partner, uh, uh, by forcing oral sex and sort of how that story unfolds. She's amazing, but his recognition of what he'd done and reckoning with it. I thought they were both amazing. They're both amazing. And, and, but, but I was so, I, I had his transformation really, really struck me because he had, been so, um, you know, there, there was nothing about him that indicated he would become what he did, which I mean, I can only think I, whenever I think of him, I, only, I can only think he's such a mensch, you know, he's such a good mm. guy. Um, but he becomes such an advocate for, um, positive sexual interactions and he really interrogates himself and he really makes change. And he, you know, really is now, you know, he, he talks to his friends, he's trying to do work with boys, he's doing all this stuff. There was nothing about him that indicated that he would be that guy. But the process of really having to come to terms with, and, and it's an after the fact thing, so not ideal, but nonetheless, it allowed him a kind of transformation um, that is exactly what we hope, particularly in an educational institution, uh, somebody can go through if they have caused harm to somebody. So Peggy, after reading that chapter and being, um, just so optimistic uh, about what could be. After you've interviewed these hundred boys and men and thinking about that restorative justice case, does it make you optimistic that more boys would behave just the way Samir did, who's the guy in that couple? Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, if he can, others can, but I think, you know, I, I, I keep thinking it's, it's this, it's again, this like multifocal idea that, um, we can do everything we want to in an after the fact way, but if we're not addressing, 
you know, positive pleasure-based sexuality from the get-go, we're always going to be doing damage control. And so it's really the combination um, that, that we need to be focusing on. So, Peggy, in the book, you know, we learn about the hookup culture. We, we, we learn about the role of pornography. We learn a ton about all the things boys are really thinking about that are key for us as parents or educators um, to understand about them and to have different kind of conversations. But what we haven't touched on is the ever-present media sort of um, conditions that are unrelenting in the notions of masculinity, in the objectifying of women, and what will change that? Because I can imagine all this good stuff going on over here, and then over there, is the onslaught of social media, of right. regular media, sending an entirely different right. message. What's going to change that? Right. We also haven't talked about love, if we want to talk about that. But the, um, but yeah, I mean, that is, that I, I, I keep meeting, I'm glad you brought that up because I keep thinking about that as we're talking that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's easy to get alarmed about porn because it's kind of a new thing, the kind of just, you know, tsunami of it. But the fact is that, mainstream media is not a whole lot better. It still repeats constant messages. Uh, it bombards kids with messages of male sexual entitlement, female sexual availability. One of the boys that I talked to said, you know, I think music has one of the biggest impacts on how boys view women because you're driving around with your friends in the car all day and you're hearing fuck that bitch and quitter, you know, four, five, ten times. It's going to affect your mindset. And research shows he's absolutely right about that. So again, you know, I think that we have, we have done a better job with girls. I mean, we still have, again, a long way to go. It's still really hard, but we at least have a sense. And I think as parents, as educators, you know, there's entire organizations that have cropped up to help girls approach, decode, and resist the media. And we really need to do that with boys too. We can't make the media go away. But I'll tell you, I mean, I have a, a, a teenager myself and it's really hard and I feel like um, I was not prepared. I don't think we could have been prepared for how much of our parenting was going to be about managing yeah. our children's media exposure. And, 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 you know, you talk about in the book that that's a good entry point for parents if you're watching something yeah. with your uh, daughter or son to, to talk about it. To, yeah. And you know, I mean, we've got an easy... the thing is we don't watch things with our kids as much anymore because now we're all on our own devices. Yeah. But, you know, things in the news, things in the media or even in the positive way. Like, you know, we were just watching uh, the show Sex Education, which is great. And um, in different rooms, you know, my daughter was watching it in the living room. I was watching it in the den um, because we didn't want, you know, she didn't want to watch it together. But we both watched it and we had really interesting conversations after, around, after watching that show. Um there, I mean, there's some. There's been some interesting shows that are that are offering a kind of counter narrative in the media. Not many, but really interesting ones. Sex Education is one. Big Mouth. It's really raunchy, but their underlying um, messages about sex are actually they've taken their role. They didn't mean that. I, I've done some work with those writers, and they thought they were going to be doing a show for people in their 20s and 30s, and they discovered that they were doing a show for young teenagers. They didn't mm. know it. 
And they took that seriously. And they really do, you know, do some excellent messaging. Oh, that's sexual- good to know. Yeah. So where do you fall in the debate about the halftime show at the Super Bowl? Because mm. one, one school of thought is go Shakira and Jennifer Lopez at 50 years old being able to do that. And the other is... Really? Is this is this the messaging we want to send? <laughs> well, so, I mean, I have so many thoughts about that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting I thought when, you might. when messages come in a mixed package like that, when there are positive messages like the, you know, the, the celebration of Puerto Rican identity mixed with self-objectification, mixed with the idea that what is empowering to women is swinging on a pole, that that's empowered sexuality, when really that is about being... Um, you know, uh, sexual, that, that's about arousing others that has nothing to do with what you might be feeling in your own body. Um, so what I tend to do is I like to talk about, uh, to, to give people that parents, this language around this, um, that, that, that breaks up that, that, um, loggerhead a little bit, which is the idea of the patriarchal bargain. And what a patriarchal bargain is, is it's embracing the rules and roles that typically disadvantage women in order to extract the power that you can out of those rules and roles without actually changing the system that is requiring them. So Jennifer Lopez or, you know, Kim Kardashian or whoever it is today, you know, because it's somebody else tomorrow, can swing on a pole or do whatever, and they will get fame, money, and power for selling their sex appeal without changing a system that requires women to be hot in a very narrow, commodified way in order to have a voice or in order to get ahead, whether they are, you know, actors or politicians or newscasters or lawyers or whatever, whether they are 15, whether they are 50. Yeah. And that's a frustration because sometimes when I think that way, you know, I think, oh, well, you know, being puritanical about this is not going to solve it. Yet it feels like it's reinforcing what we're trying to take away, get rid of. Absolutely. And I do think, you know, like that when when somebody elevates the idea of stripper culture as an empowered form of female sexuality, you have to break that down a little bit. You know, you have to say, look, what is that? What is the first of all, how is that? empowering really i mean empowering would be like i don't know women is the president i don't know but <laughs> exactly. um but it it's the power to um arouse men um if you fit a particular model again that may mean absolutely zero about how you experience sexuality and sexual pleasure in your own body there is no requirement for somebody swinging on a pole to have you know i don't know ever had an orgasm or understand the first thing about their own sexual pleasure so I, here's what I'd like to close with, because I'm I'm sad that we've run out of time uh, because there's so much in the book. So our listeners are just going to have to read the book. Um, I want to be- remind everybody that on your website that there is a plethora of resources for whether you're a teacher or a parent or even a, a friend that people should go to. But I want to close on this note. My impression at the end of the book was that you are optimistic that the environment can change for boys. Am I reading that right? And Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, look at what we've done for girls, you know, look at how, how, 
I know that when I started writing about girls in, you know, the, in, in the nineties that people would say, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Girls need to be able to stand up. They need to be able to have a voice, blah, blah, blah. But I'm afraid if I teach my daughter that, that she's going to be marginalized and she won't have friends and boys won't like her and people will say she's a bitch. And that's changed, mm. you know, not entirely, but it's changed. We have gone a long way in, in how we view women, how we view femininity. We've got a lot of work to do, but it's changed. And there, you know, if we put a lens on um, changing masculinity, we can do the same thing. And and it's really to our boys' benefit. There was just even something that came. I just got a study um, on, you know, my Google search, whatever it is today, that was on how rigid masculine norms are hurting aging baby boom men because as they get older, those norms, you know, prioritize isolation and men are becoming lonelier and more isolated as they're getting older because they don't know how to form connected relationships. And, you know, and, what this what this book taught me was it isn't, you know, a lot of times you hear guys saying, oh, you know, they're, they're just trying to t- turn guys into girls. And, and what you learn— I get accused of pussification. I, I'm sure you do. But, <laughs> but actually what you learn reading this book is you fall in love with these boys— yeah. This is not somebody trying to s- turn them into something they're not. No. It's about giving them to be the have the opportunity to be who they are. Yeah, it's really about letting them be whole people and they want to be and the boys are so sincere and they're really wrestling with all these ideas and issues and they really really wanted our support and that is where to me the great hope is they want our support. They want education. They want to know they want to be the best men they can be. And, you know, it's it's up to us to help them get there. Help them be there. So mm-hmm. we've been talking with Peggy Orenstein, uh, the author of Boys and Sex, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Peggy, um, thank you for being on Just the Right Book. And thank you for um, starting, accelerating this conversation that will benefit all of us. Thank you. I love your store and I'm so grateful to be on. Well, thanks. Be well, Peggy. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.